from Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. For years, Congress has moved slowly to fight climate change, claiming that action to limit global warming gases could hurt the U.S. economy. Now some leading economists are telling Congress that the price of inaction could be far higher. It is failing to act that will eventually damage growth. The message from the economics of climate change is clear. We must act strongly, and we must act now. Also, the groundbreaking campaigns of Kenyan activist Wangari Mathai on behalf of women and the environment have won her the Nobel Peace Prize, but not universal acclaim. Sometimes when you are breaking barriers, some people will applaud you, but some people want to discourage you because they think you are breaking those barriers that should not be broken because people want to fix you in a box. A conversation with Wangari Mathai and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you want to know what's going on in politics, the saying goes, follow the money. And that's now what's happening to the Capitol Hill debate over how to respond to global warming. Democratic leaders in Congress say they want a strong bill on climate change this year, given some projections that inaction could lead to an economic meltdown. But any action on climate change is likely to result in some economic winners and losers. And business is now asking who would benefit and who would have to pay. From Washington, Living on Earth's Jeff Young has our report. Call it the bucks and change of climate change. What's the cost of capping greenhouse gas emissions? And what's the cost if we don't? Lawmakers dove into those complex questions in simultaneous hearings on Capitol Hill. Senate Energy Committee Chairman Jeff Bingaman heard from former World Bank Chief Economist Sir Nicholas Stern. Stern made waves last fall with a report estimating how global warming would affect the global economy, something Bingaman says has been missing from the talk in Washington. Now with the release of the report by Sir Nicholas Stern, we're beginning to understand and to focus not just on the costs of action, but the costs of inaction. At the high end, Stern predicts climate calamities and mass dislocations of people that could drain up to 20 percent of the world's economic output. Critics question the unorthodox methods Stern used to put such uncertain events into dollars and pounds. But even at the low end of his predictions, unchecked climate change steals 5 percent of the world's wealth. Stern says cutting carbon emissions would cost just 1 percent. That will not slow growth. It is failing to act that will eventually damage growth. The message from the economics of climate change is clear. We must act strongly and we must act now. While Stern spoke, leaders from corporate giants DuPont, BP and Pacific Gas and Electric told senators on the Environment Committee they would welcome regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. DuPont CEO Chad Holliday says a carbon cap would encourage more businesses to save energy and money the way his has. We have saved uh, a 72 percent reduction in, in uh, greenhouse gas emissions and $3 billion cumulatively since the early 90s in, in lower energy costs. And that's going on today. The companies formed the U.S. Climate Action Partnership last month with environmentalists. Those partners want a law to cap greenhouse gas emissions and let industry trade pollution permits. The effort impressed one senator who could be a crucial swing vote, Republican John Warner of Virginia. When I see uh, such an extraordinary cross-section of America's free enterprise system come 
and form a group like this, uh, you, you've got my attention. Warner's state digs and burns coal, and he is highly respected in his party. If he warms to a climate bill, it would gain major momentum. But other Republicans attacked the companies in the climate partnership. Missouri Senator Kit Bond says the CEOs are more interested in the bottom line than any lofty environmental benefit. Uh, I have some questions when I see members of uh, industry and business pursuing goals that are very harmful to other uh, industries, uh, but profitable for them. Let's not get that competitive advantage by sticking it to some people who are the least able to handle those costs. Peter Darby of PG&E bristled at Bond's accusation. The suggestion that we're doing this to realize some form of monopoly profits or corner the market is totally without merit. Whatever motivates a business leader's decisions on climate change, it's clear a cap on carbon emissions could decide who wins and loses in the business world. And that explains why lobbying on global warming is red hot lately. Scott Siegel lobbies for the firm Bracewell and Giuliani, which represents power companies that burn a lot of coal. I don't think that anybody was here today fully out of a sense of altruism. I'm not saying they don't believe that what they're doing is right. I'm just saying that uh, there are many, many economic motives that lie just below the surface in the climate debate. One of Siegel's clients, power company TXU, wants to exempt power plants like the dozen the company plans in Texas. Other companies focus on how a carbon cap-and-trade system is set up. The tiniest details could mean millions of dollars. In short, companies that once lobbied to simply stop a climate change bill must now consider what happens if such a bill actually becomes law. And there's a saying in the world of K Street lobbyists, if you're not at the table, you might end up on the menu. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Trees and other plants take carbon dioxide out of the air every day and thereby slow down the rate of global warming. So what if we could devise a technology to pull carbon out of the atmosphere fast enough to stop climate change in its tracks? Well, if you can come up with the answer, billionaire businessman Richard Branson is prepared to hand you up to $25 million in prize money. All you have to do is develop a proven and reliable technique to get a billion tons of carbon out of the atmosphere in the course of a year. As of today, of course, that's considered impossible. But then again, for thousands of years, we thought people couldn't fly and certainly couldn't go to the moon. So Living on Earth's Emily Taylor asked some leading scientists what approaches might win this so-called Branson Challenge. The official title is the Virgin Earth Challenge. It's named after the many businesses in Richard Branson's empire, including Virgin Records and Virgin Atlantic Airways. The challenge is aimed at finding a way to capture the excess carbon dioxide that humans are putting into the atmosphere. Natural processes already capture billions of tons of atmospheric CO2, but things like gasoline-powered cars, coal-fired power plants, and Branson's jets are producing far more CO2 than the natural carbon cycle can absorb, three and a half billion tons more every year. Branson is hoping his $25 million prize will motivate scientists to find a way to capture about a third of that excess CO2. Of course, some scientists have been thinking about this challenge for years. One of them is J. Craig Venter. He's the geneticist who gained notoriety when he raced the federal government to map the human genome. Well, we're trying to meet the challenge of removing CO2 by designing a new set of microbial cells using our synthetic genomic capabilities to do what we find in deep ocean organisms, uh, capture CO2, 
and convert that CO2 by fixing the carbon into uh, sugars, proteins, uh, various kinds of uh, lipids or biopolymers. Venter says that the carbon stored in his synthetic organisms could then be extracted and used in carbon-heavy manufacturing processes. That would kill two birds with one stone, since most industrial carbon now comes from petroleum. Clothing, carpets, pharmaceuticals, uh, plastics all come uh, from the petrochemical industry. So uh, if all the carbon that goes into plastics uh, comes from captured CO2 versus uh, oil, we don't have to take the carbon out of the ground. Other scientists would also use the oceans to help reduce carbon levels. John Latham is at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. He proposes increasing the number of droplets in the low-lying clouds that often form over the ocean. Latham says this would make the clouds reflect more sunlight, which would help to cool the planet. If we can make those clouds reflect about an extra 3% or something like that, then there will be a cooling because less sunlight is getting to Earth. And, and because the solubility of carbon dioxide in water uh, increases as the water gets cooler, then more CO2 that's in the air will get trapped in the oceans. Here's how Latham's plan would work. And we propose to spray from special um, unmanned satellite-guided vessels, uh, seawater droplets, uh, very small ones, about one ten-thousandth of a centimeter in size, um, and they act as centers for the production of additional droplets. And so we'll, in that way, increase the reflectivity of these clouds. Another big idea would mimic one of nature's most effective means of regulating carbon dioxide. Klaus Lackner teaches at the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Columbia University. The way to get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is akin to how a tree does it. It puts surfaces up, the leaves, over which the CO2 flows, uh, and is being the air flows and the CO2 is being absorbed. Uh, Once you have absorbed that on a surface, which is, let's say, wetted with a liquid, we can collect that liquid and then then remove the CO2 from that liquid. Lackner says that the CO2 could then either be disposed of underground or used in manufacturing processes, like making cement. Lackner envisions putting up thousands of these collectors across the globe to suck up emissions from cars and industry. I sort of sketched out some time ago a tower, which is the size of a water tower for a small town, and such a, such an object by itself could take care of about 15,000 cars, again, like the size of that small town. And if you had 250,000 such towers worldwide, which is not a terribly large number, you would take out as much carbon dioxide as the world is putting, putting into the atmosphere right now. So, new microbes, seawater spraying vessels, or giant fake plastic trees. Whether any of these ideas or any others will do the trick remains to be seen. Richard Branson himself isn't sure that his $25 million prize will ever be awarded, and he makes it clear that governments and private industry will have to invest much larger sums still to find feasible solutions to the problem of excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. For Living on Earth, I'm Emily Taylor. Just ahead, a number of baby shampoos are linked to toxic chemicals suspected of causing cancer. First, this note on emerging science from Paige Doty. 
In the deepest parts of the ocean, no light reaches the sea floor. It's pitch black and for the most part quiet, but not everywhere. This is the sound of piping hot aquatic vents on the Juan de Fuca Ridge, a mile and a half below the surface, off the coast of Washington state. These vents, known as black smokers, spew superheated water laced with minerals. For years, most scientists believed these vents were silent, but now researchers at the University of Washington have proven that they're not. The sound of the vents has been captured using a specially designed deep sea digital recorder. So why does this matter to anybody other than the fish? Well, the chemicals dissolved in the piping hot water of hydrothermal vents provide important nutrients for the ocean's food chain. There's even speculation that life itself may have begun in the chemical cauldrons around such vents. And lead researcher Timothy Crone says that by analyzing the sound, researchers can better understand the flow of material out of the vents and the cycling of chemicals from the Earth's crust into the ocean. And he hopes that this work may reveal important information about how life on Earth began. So maybe the sound of this smoker will help get us all out of the dark. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Paige Doty. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Bath time is one of the nicest rituals in caring for an infant. But it now turns out it could have a toxic dark side. A new study has found that some of the most popular baby shampoos contain an industrial solvent that's suspected of causing cancer in humans, along with damaging the liver, kidneys, and nervous system. It's called 1,4-Dioxane, and it's used to make shampoos and body washes soft and bubbly. Now, in the wake of the study, some brands of shampoo containing the chemical are being pulled from the market. Living on Earth's Ashley Ahern has our report. Nice, warm water. It's bath time in the Love Diggory household in Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> and two-year-old Layla is getting her hair rinsed. Layla, can you put this over your eyes? Okay, I need you to sit down, big girl, okay? Let me rinse out your hair. Victoria Love is trying to get Layla to put a washcloth over her big brown eyes to keep out the shampoo. And while she can protect Layla's eyes from the suds, she can't protect her daughter from potentially dangerous substances that might be in her shampoo and other baby care products. One substance in particular Love worries about is 1,4-Dioxane, and with good reason. A recent study has found trace amounts of dioxane in a number of widely used baby care products, including Johnson & Johnson's Kid Shampoo Watermelon Explosion and Hello Kitty Bubble Bath. I was frankly shocked to learn that widely used baby shampoos and soaps could contain a carcinogen. That's Dr. Dever Davis. She's the head of the Environmental Oncology Center at the University of Pittsburgh and a professor of epidemiology at their Graduate School of Public Health. Dioxane forms in these products as a result of a chemical reaction between other ingredients. One of them is sodium lauryl sulfate, an ingredient you've probably seen on the label of your shampoo or body wash. It's a normal detergent used in many soaps. Problem is, Dr. Davis says, it's a little harsh on tender skin. She gives a little chemistry lesson. What happens is that ethylene oxide is added to the sodium lauryl sulfate to create sodium laureth sulfate. And in the process, you get diethylene oxide, which is another name for 1,4-dioxane. It can be completely removed by what's called vacuum stripping. 
This is something that is completely avoidable. And Dr. Davis says elsewhere, it's completely avoided. 1,4-dioxane has been banned from cosmetics in Europe, and the World Health Organization and the U.S. National Toxicology Program consider it to be a probable human carcinogen because it causes cancer in male and female, mice and rats. In this country, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration says dioxane in cosmetics is an incidental ingredient, so they don't require companies to remove it or to list it on the label. In order for the FDA to ban dioxane from cosmetics, there would have to be demonstrated human harm. Manufacturers complete internal testing for safety before putting products on the market, but the FDA doesn't do pre-market testing. The FDA press office declined requests for an interview with Living on Earth. However, an industry spokesman said he believes there's no cause for alarm. Dr. John Bailey is the executive vice president of science at the Cosmetic, Toiletry, and Fragrance Association. Virtually everything we're surrounded by carries a hazard of, of some sorts. You know, I think that at the end of the day, the levels of dioxane in these products do not present a risk uh, by any scientific measure. Time to get out. But when it comes to bath time, Victoria Love would like to judge the safety of the products herself. At the very least, she says she'd like ingredients such as 1,4-dioxane to be listed on the bottle. But I really can't believe that as a parent I'm in a position to, you know, suddenly become a chemist in my free time to investigate, you know, every little product and, you know, how it might have some adverse health effect. And um, I'm hoping that the more people understand and realize, you know, what they're actually being sold, uh, people will start demanding change. Some change is already in the works. Hello Kitty Bubble Bath had the highest dioxane levels of the children's bath products the study tested. And when contacted for this report, the distributor said they would initiate a recall process. For Living on Earth, I'm Ashley Ahern. For more information on dioxane and personal care products, go to our website, LOE.org. They call it a whooping crane because it has more than an eight-foot trachea and can be heard for up to three miles away. But this voice almost fell silent. In 1941, whooping cranes were just 15 birds away from extinction. Today, the numbers are back up to nearly 500, but these magnificent wading birds still hover on the edge of survival, and they recently took another serious blow. Earlier this month, a tornado ripped through the Gulf Coast of Florida. It killed 20 people and 17 whooping cranes in the Chazahowitzka National Wildlife Refuge near Tampa. The story of what happened to the birds and how a flock of whooping cranes got to Florida in the first place is rather remarkable, and perhaps best told by Joe Duff, the co-founder of Operation Migration. He joins us on the phone from Port Perry, Ontario, and uh, Joe, perhaps you should start by telling us what you do for a living. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Go ahead. Actually, I run an organization that uh, teaches whooping cranes, uh, young whooping cranes, to follow ultralight aircraft. And then we use that technique to lead them on a migration from Wisconsin to Florida. And uh, thereby we uh, substitute for the parent and try to establish a new flock. This is the University of Migration? 
Yes, it is, actually, flight school. So how, how far did you fly with the flock that was killed in this month's storm? Uh, every year, every fall, we start the migration. It goes through seven states from Wisconsin to Florida, and it's about 1,235 miles. Okay, how do you train a bird to migrate? <laughs> Well, a whooping crane, like a lot of species, learns the migration route by following their parent. These are precocial birds, so when they hatch, they imprint on the first thing that really pays attention to them, and that's normally, of course, the parent. So we substitute parent for pilot, and we uh, imprint the birds on our handlers, and then, of course, we condition them to follow the aircraft. It's a process that starts in April and May when they hatch and is carried on right through the summer until the migration time, which is in uh, early October. So can you tell me about some of the birds that flew down to the wildlife refuge uh, with you this past fall? Well, I'll give you a little background first. Um, you know, this whole project takes place in uh, what we call isolation rearing. In other words, every person who goes near the birds, and there are very few of them, wears a, a big baggy white costume, covers them head to toe. We also carry a digital recorder of uh, an adult bird call and a puppet that looks like a whooping crane. The idea is not to look like a crane, it's to disguise the human form so that when these birds are released and they encounter their first normally dressed human, they'll be wild. So on their level, you actually become a bird. How did you fit into the pecking order of this particular flock of birds? <laughs> well, I'm not by myself. There's several handlers. Each one has a, has a personality and each one has an, uh, a relationship with the birds. I'll give you an example. Um, last year, I wanted to get some photographs. I put my costume on and I walked out. And as I approached, one of our birds from a previous generation, one of our older birds came in and, of course, wanted to get near the chicks and wanted some of the food and wanted some of that activity. And they can be pretty aggressive. So I stood between them and I challenged that adult bird, you see. And of course, the first challenge is he, he raised his head and I raised my head. And we had this little altitude battle until I win, of course, because I'm six feet tall. The next thing they do is, is uh, they stamp their feet a little bit. So I stamp my feet. And, and they have this incredible challenge. It's called a, a stick toss challenge. It's kind of like in high school, you know, and the bird is kind of saying to himself, you know, you're so insignificant. You're so unimportant that I can actually turn my back and play with this stick on the ground and not even pay attention to you. And of course, the whole time this eye is right on you, you know, and staring right at you. So there's the bird playing with one stick and I'm back to back with him playing with another, you know, challenging him and he's challenging me. And he finally got fed up and he walked around to the side of the little pond and I walked over and cut him off again we had a few more challenges. And then finally, after about an hour, he just left on his own. It was just an, an amazing interaction with the bird. It was just such an incredible thing to do. Tell me about some of these birds that flew down to Florida with you this past fall. Well, as I said, each one has an individual uh, personality, but we don't name the birds. We number them. We're trying to convey the idea to the public that these are not pets. But you, you certainly become attached to them. There's one particular bird that I liked. is number 10. I could recognize that bird in the air because his primaries were slightly damaged. There was a little gap in one of his feathers, and I could see it in the air. Mm -hmm. And every time I'd look out to my wingtip, that bird would be lead, you know. And he would be always doing something stupid, you know. He'd be in front of the wing or challenging me, and he'd cut behind the aircraft or over top of it or underneath it. And number 10 was always where he wasn't supposed to be. He was always leading the flock off somewhere or so, we, you know, I kind of got to like him. He was a bit of a maverick. <laughs> and uh, and then you get the news that this, this tornado has killed this, this entire flock or 
What happened when the storm hit the wildlife refuge where the young birds were staying? Well, and of course we don't know because it was way out there. But um, um, once the birds arrive in Florida, we have a, uh, a release pen, which is about four acres. Uh, and it uh, has eight-foot high walls, and it's protected by an electric fence. But it's not top-netted. Then they fly in and out. And during the day, they learn to forage on natural food. And at nighttime, they come back because that's where they roost, and that's where the food is. And they're inadvertently protected from predators. Well, we now have four, five generations of birds that have all wintered in that pen. So that's their destination when they come back, once they're released. So if they arrive at that pen and there's a bunch of chicks handy, then then that means there's free food for them as well, and they become aggressive. They can chase the chicks out of the pen. So the only management technique we have is to move the chicks into a top-netted pen. Uh, once we do that, then the food, of course, is gone, and the target of their aggression is gone, and they just move on, and the chicks are uh, allowed to go free. And, and we were just about to do this when this unforecast and unforeseen storm hit. Nobody knew it was going to be as intense as it was. We had uh, handlers out there checking the birds at four in the afternoon, and everything was fine. The birds were happy, and there was just a light breeze, and it was overcast, and that storm turned deadly about three in the morning. And uh, the the birds were discovered the next day. How big an impact will the loss of the hatchlings of 2006 have on the overall population of the whooping cranes here in North America? Well, as you mentioned earlier, back in the 40s, there were only 15 birds, and this population was growing nicely. But that was our sixth year, and we had 81 birds out there, and we had an 80% survival rate, so it was uh, we were doing really well. Um, whooping cranes breed when they're three to five years old, most successfully at five years of age. So five years from now, or actually four years from now, because they were yearlings, we're going to have a downturn in the number of nests we have and the number of breeding pairs coming online. As I understand, there is a bit of a story of hope here that you had a survivor? Yes, we don't know how, but one bird managed to escape that terrible storm. You know, that storm was considered, you know, a 50-year storm. There were also 20 people killed in that same episode. So it was a pretty devastating event. And we really don't know how, but the next day, number 15 couldn't be found. And each bird has a tracking device on it. So the next day, we put an aircraft up with a tracking device, and it was found about 10 miles inland with a bunch of other sandhills. So that's one bird at least. (laughs) Joe Duff is co-founder of Operation Migration and trainer of cranes. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's time now to hear from you, our listeners. John Meadows, who listens to us on WHYY in Philadelphia, was disappointed to hear little but criticism of President Bush's comments on climate change in his recent State of the Union address. I am not a registered Republican or Democrat, and generally not an admirer of the Bush administration, Mr. Meadows writes. But statements like that of California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's environmental advisor, Terry Tamminen, that the House is burning and the president is mowing the lawn, continue to fan the fires of this debate. Even if we're just mowing the lawn, Mr. Meadows continues, it may help stop the spread of the blaze. Blame and shame have largely been exhausted as means of achieving an end. We recently interviewed Democratic Congressman Henry Waxman about allegations that the Bush administration tried to suppress scientific data about climate change. That prompted this comment from Grant Garber of Henderson, North Carolina. Ten or twenty years from now, when New York City, Miami, New Orleans, Los Angeles, and San Francisco go underwater, ex-President Bush probably would have said mistakes were made to hide this obfuscation of the truth as he did the procurement of false intelligence on Iraq. But with Waxman on his case, I'll have to say it a bit sooner. Several of you wrote in about our recent interview with Tim Smith, 
the author of the Buck Wilder Outdoor Stories for Children. Mr. Smith's comment that the average American spends as little as 10 minutes a day outside really hit home with KCFR listener Robert Stencil. Mr. Stencil works at a public observatory in Colorado, and he says that he's watched the annual attendance figures dwindle year after year over the last 15 years. He laments that young people seem to have stopped looking at the night sky altogether, and he puts the blame on light pollution. You can illuminate us with your comments. Send them to comments at LOE.org. Once again, that's comments at LOE.org. Or drop us a line at 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. A fifth of the fresh water in the world is found in the Great Lakes along the U.S.-Canadian border. And more and more, it seems, these lakes are in trouble. Changing rain patterns have kept the lakes lower than usual over the past few years, and they've also been laced with pollutants and invasive species. Now the lakes are facing a microscopic threat in the form of a virus that can make fish bleed to death. Lester Graham of the Great Lakes Radio Consortium has more. The disease that's killing fish is called viral hemorrhagic septicemia, or VHS. Jim Diana is a fish biologist at the University of Michigan who's been looking into what it does to fish. The virus causes really kind of a general systemic deterioration. Uh, Most noticeable, sometimes they'll develop sores or lesions on the outside of the body, but they often will die without any real external evidence at all. Basically, the fish die from internal bleeding. For several years, there have been die-offs in the St. Lawrence River, which connects the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean, but researchers weren't able to confirm the cause was VHS. Then, last summer in Lake St. Clair, the lake near Detroit that lies between Lake Huron and Lake Erie, Jim Diana says fish die-offs were confirmed to be caused by VHS. And since then, they've found it in quite a few other species, something like 20 other species. Um, So it's quite widespread. Since then, the virus has been detected in fish in Lake Huron. It's not clear how the virus got here. But the first strains of VHS were discovered in Europe about 50 years ago. Researchers guessed that infected fish hitchhiked in the ballast tanks of ships, or a live fish shipment escaped into the St. Lawrence River, and it spread from there. Biologists say the spread of VHS is not expected to wipe out fish in the Great Lakes, but it is causing some real concern. We're not talking a couple of fish here. We're talking about large fish kills. Mark Gaydon is with the Great Lakes Fishery Commission. Gaydon says because stocking fish is a big industry, there's a lot of fish shipped between the U.S. and Canada and between one state and another. There is a movement of fish, fish eggs, and other fishery-related things like um, water that's uh, used in the fish stocking trucks, things like that. There's aquaculture that occurs on fish farms in the Great Lakes Basin. The Departments of Natural Resources harvest uh, fish eggs to use in their stocking programs, and the fish themselves are stocked. So the chance that the virus can spread by all those fish moving around is significant. The federal government thought it was such a risk that it banned all live fish shipments. Most of the Great Lakes states and commercial fishers quickly appealed that ruling. They said it was overkill. They persuaded the feds that state testing would reduce chances that VHS would spread by transport. So the federal government backed off a bit, but restrictions are still causing some problems. For example, live fish that are not going to be put back into the lakes, live fish that are headed for dinner plates at restaurants, still have to be tested, and VHS poses no risk to human health. 
The Great Lakes states, the U.S. and Canadian governments are still trying to figure out how to best prevent the spread of VHS without hurting the businesses that rely on live fish shipments any more than necessary. Meanwhile, some scientists say the virus will simply have to run its course. Those fish that survive will build up a natural immunity to VHS. For Living on Earth, this is Lester Graham. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Faith, Hope, and the Love of Trees. A conversation with Kenya's Wangari Mathai is just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from you, our listeners, and from member stations. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. There's nothing like the quiet in the city in a big snowstorm. The passing of an occasional car is muffled by all the white padding, and when the flakes stop falling, all seems to be calm. And that's when commentator Bonnie Auslander likes to head outside with her shovel. It felt good to have the winter sun warm my neck and to hear the sound of my shovel scraping along the concrete. But after 15 straight minutes of lifting heavy, wet snow, I had to take a break. Besides, I had errands to run, and I figured I'd do the rest when I came back. When I got home, though, the entire sidewalk was bare and surrounded by angled walls. It looked like someone had helped himself to a long strip of white sheet cake. It didn't take long to figure out who. My neighbor Jim had been by with his snowblower. I can do the whole sidewalk in just ten minutes with one of these babies, he boasted, when he appeared a few minutes later, patting the top of the contraption like it was a snow pile-eating puppy. I thanked him, of course, but inside I felt disappointed and amused. Here was my neighbor fondling a machine that filled our yards with a nerve-grating roar and the stench of gasoline. Yet this is the same sweet elderly man who always makes his dog, the real one I mean, sit still so my toddler can pat him, and who in the summer brings over cherry tomatoes from his garden. I was caught in a paradox. I knew I should be happy that Jim wouldn't be dropping dead from a heart attack after shoveling, and I recognized it was easy for me to romanticize snow removal because I didn't have to do it very often. And yet I mourned the older, quieter days, apparently more than he did, all of which led me to ponder the flavors of silence. On an unmechanized Amish farm, it's the first thing that captures your attention, much like the saying that silence is the sound after the baby stops crying. Or is silence really just as simple as no noise? Once I heard a film editor explain that in the movies, a subtle sound conveys a feeling of silence so much better than the total absence of noise. For example, want to get across the surreal stillness after an explosion? You need to pump up the sound of tiny pebbles as they hit the ground. So maybe we need a small noise campaign so that we can all appreciate the quiet better, especially that muffled silence after a snowfall. I'll start. I'll wait till Jim goes inside, then sneak to my backyard walkway, still untouched by his machine. And I'm going to listen very, very carefully to the sound of silence, to the sound of wind moving across the snow, to the sound of one woman shoveling. She sounds happy, 
Commentator Bonnie Auslander shovels to the sounds of silence at her home in Bethesda, Maryland. The new book, Unbowed, tells the story of a child from a village in Kenya who became the first girl in her family to go to school, and then the first woman of color in her part of the world to earn a doctorate. The story continues with her founding a global peace and development movement based on planting trees, and then waking up one morning to a phone call telling her she'd won the Nobel Peace Prize. And no, the story isn't fiction. It's the memoir of Wangari Mathai, one of the most accomplished environmental and human rights leaders of our time. Professor, as she's known in Kenya, is visiting the United States this month. She's speaking about her efforts to preserve the rainforest of Central Africa and her other work on behalf of the environment and democracy that was recognized by the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004. And she joins us now from a studio in Buffalo. Professor, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. Now, for those who are unaware, I, I want to mention that you, Wangari Mathai, are, are the founder of, of just this extraordinary effort to mobilize uh, Kenyans and people all over the world now to plant trees in deforested land. Uh, you founded programs uh, to teach uh, children about river ecology. You've led tree planting campaigns for soldiers. Your leadership and that of the Green Belt movement that you founded in Kenya has, has moved Kenyans to plant, what, some 30 million trees? Uh, and accounting. And counting. <laughs> yeah, we are still planting. It is very important for people to understand that we are dealing with a, uh, a region and a continent that is greatly deforested, uh, and it needs literally millions and millions of trees and, and mobilization of as many hands as can possibly be found. And even more so as we think that the tree you plant in Kenya helps the entire world with the global warming problem. Yes, especially now that uh, the scientists are telling us with more certainty that the climate change is indeed happening. It's very, very important for us to plant trees as well as protect the trees that are standing because these are our friends. They help us fix the carbon that is now in the atmosphere. When you received the Nobel Peace Prize, you got one of those very famous phone calls uh, from Norway. What was just about the first thing you did after you got that phone call? I, I was so overwhelmed. I was um, literally out of myself, tears rolling down my cheeks, unbelieving. And I, w I happened to be at this site where I was facing Mount Kenya. And for generations of past of my people, this mountain was a holy mountain. And it was one of the mountains that we had been trying to save from deforestation. So I was extremely overwhelmed. And I immediately dug a hole and planted a nadi flame. The Nandi flame tree. This is the bright orange flowering tree. Yeah, it's a, it's a tree that is, um, it grows quite tall. And at the top, when it has flowers, they are red hot. So from a distance, the tree looks like it is a flame. That's why I guess the English, when they first saw the tree, they called it Nandi flame. Now, being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize along the way, you wound up in jail, not once, not twice, but several times, all because, what, you were planting trees? Why, why were you jailed for, for planting trees? Well, 
the jailing was not because of planting trees per se. It was because in the course of planting trees, in the course of mobilizing women, in the course of creating networks of women to plant trees, it had become necessary to also give them information on how the environment is destroyed, sometimes by the state. And it became necessary for us to raise our voices and tell the government that it was not managing those resources responsibly. Uh, and it was while we were doing this that we got arrested. The actual planting of trees would have been all right, but it would have been f completely uh, nonsensical for us to be planting trees on one side and other people are cutting them on the other. So we decided to protect the standing trees and especially forests, which also serve as the water catchment areas for millions of people who live around the mountains. Now, it's not easy for women anywhere on the planet, but I don't know if people understand how difficult it is to be uh, an outspoken woman in East Africa, or was. You uh, were the first uh, uh, woman of color to have a PhD in Central and East Africa, as I understand it. Yes, indeed. It's always very difficult to be a pioneer. Uh, and women, I guess, have been pioneering for a long time, trying to break the barriers of discrimination and denial of capacity to exploit our potential. And going to school for me was breaking one of those barriers, getting to high school, coming to America and attending college, going home and registering for a PhD. All these were breaking barriers. And sometimes when you are breaking barriers, some people will applaud you, but some people want to discourage you because they think you are breaking those barriers that should not be broken because people want to fix you in a box. Now... Despite your fame and success, the Greenbelt movement has subsisted on, well, you don't have a whole lot of money. There are times when, what, you don't have enough money to buy the, the plastic tubes that your volunteers use for stuffing in soil and seedlings. You don't have that basic item to, to accommodate everyone who wants to plant trees. Yes, that has always been our challenge from the very beginning, and we hope that at least now that our work has been validated, uh, that we would receive the support we need. Right now, as I speak, our biggest challenge is office space so that we can expand because there is so much demand for us, both locally and globally. At one point, there was talk of spreading the Greenbelt Movement's uh, tree planting mobilization to Haiti. Um, you were in touch with uh, former Vice President Al Gore, in fact, to those uh, about those efforts. Uh, Haiti, of course, is one of the most deforested and, well, frankly, God-forsaken spots on this planet. Um, what's going on now uh, in that regard? It has been very, very difficult uh, doing things in Haiti because to succeed, you need people on the ground who are committed to it. And that has been missing. Somebody cannot come from outside and plant trees in Haiti rehabilitate the environment in Haiti. It must be done by the Haitians. We can share our experience with them, but it is they who must do it. The government, as you know, there has been in trouble for many years. We even brought some Haitians all the way to Kenya 
with the assistance of um, some women friends who were helping us. But when they went back, they didn't do anything. They kind of fizzled away. It's not easy. It's not a matter of talking. It's a matter of going down on your knees, digging holes, putting those seedlings. And first and foremost, you have to start with the seeds. So you look for seeds, you put them in the nursery, they germinate, you nurture them. When they are about two feet high, you put them in the ground and you water them and you protect them. We are still in touch with them. And uh, we, are, we are now trying another organization, which I hope will help us to make a breakthrough. But my appeal is that Haitians join us so that we can share our experience. They can get down on their knees and rehabilitate their country one tree at a time. Wangari Mathai, um, from your own perspective, what about your life is is perhaps in any woman's life? And then what's what's extraordinary about what's happened to you and the changes that you've been able to help uh, make possible? I think that um, what has, has, has happened that is extraordinary uh, was sometimes completely unexpected. Going to school was in itself a, an extraordinary event because I was going to school at a time when very few girls were going to school. And then in the 1960s, I had another great opportunity when I found myself coming to America along with over 300 students in an event that was organized by Senator John Kennedy, who was at that time campaigning to become the next president of the United States of America. And then I came to this country at a very interesting time during the uh, the times when Martin Luther King and his colleagues were having the the demonstrations and calling for changes in the law to give all Americans, and especially black Americans, all full rights. And that had a great influence on me so that when I went back home and eventually encountered human rights violations and tortures of people who were seeking greater political space, I did not hesitate to to advocate for their release and to advocate for respect for human rights and women's rights. And in my own way, my own life was demonstrating that if you give a woman her rights, if you give her, her an opportunity, she can indeed make great contribution. She can she has potential. But it is not as if I chose it now. I didn't choose these obstacles. They were just being put uh, before me, partly by culture, partly by tradition, partly by the way the society was structured. And that's why you call the next to last chapter of, of your book, Rise Up and Walk. That's right. I think one of the, the great messages that I try to, to share is that it is very important for all of us to know that we are human, we are not divine. So we make mistakes, we fall, sometimes we go way harder. And that's not a crime. What we need to do every time is gather enough courage to rise up and walk. But in the process, we may need people to give us the, a helping hand to help us become whole because I borrow that from the story of Peter and John 
in the Bible. I think it is chapter in the chapter of the Acts. Those of you who read the Bible, you remember the story of the man who was disabled from birth. He was sitting at the entrance to the synagogue, and people would come and give him alms. But when Peter and John came, they said, Peter said, silver and gold I have none, but what I have I'll give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the book says, he rose up, he felt his limbs become whole, and he rose up and he was very happy. I love that story because I think that that's what we should do with people who are poor, people who are marginalized, people who are not given opportunities. We don't need to give them arms. We don't need to give them aid. We need to empower them. We need to help them become whole. Give them a hand and help them rise up and walk. Wangari Mathai is the winner of the 2004 Nobel Peace Prize. She's the founder of Africa's Green Belt Movement, and she also serves as Kenya's Deputy Minister of the Environment. Her new memoir is called Unbowed. We'll continue our conversation with Professor Mathai in next week's program. You can also hear an hour-long documentary about her life and work anytime at our website, LOE.org. Next week on Living on Earth, pine trees are moving north. Fires are sparking more easily, and it seems to be raining less than ever. In northern Arizona, scientists say they're seeing the predicted effects of climate change coming to pass right before their eyes. As an ecologist, it's exciting to see change like this. Uh, It's very humbling to see something so drastically happen over a very short period of time. On the trail of climate change in Arizona. That's next week on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in the homeland of Wangari Mathai. The nighttime world along the forested river Mara is wide awake with giant flying insects, chirping bats, chiming frogs, and the occasional hungry hippo. Chris Watson recorded this jungle chorus at River's Edge in the Maasai Mara, a wildlife preserve in southern Kenya. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Emily Taylor, Peter Thompson, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Paige Doty and Megan Vigil. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, 
the Town Creek Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. PRI Public Radio International.